This week on Excelsior Journeys, it is part one of the Transformers the Movie 35th Anniversary Celebration. Special guests Ron Friedman and Flint Dilly will be here to discuss the development of the screenplay that started it all. And don't forget, all August, Excelsior Journeys is raising donations for the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. Be sure to listen to each show for more details. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Welcome to this very special Excelsior Journeys miniseries, celebrating the 35th anniversary of Transformers the Movie. Every Tuesday in August, you will hear from various cast and crew members and other special guests discussing the development, the voices, the music, the aftermath, and the film's legacy. So get ready to go beyond good, beyond evil, beyond your wildest imagination. Till all are one and ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy, and thank you so much for being here. As I've said for the past several months, I have been wanting and waiting for August 2021 to hit, and it is finally here. Here it is, the 35th anniversary celebration of Transformers the movie. And just as I had said a couple of weeks ago when I spoke with Mike Seibert, when he asked me why this movie, which is a question that he always gets as well because he's bought quite a few copies of this movie on his own. Why this movie? Why does it deserve this sort of fanfare? Why am I so anxious to celebrate it? And my response is always simple, because it deserves to be celebrated. Everything that it has done for me in terms of uh, creative fulfillment, in terms of creative impulses, and who knew that that 10-year-old kid sitting in a theater in New Jersey was going to have this sort of opportunity to speak with so many people that inspired him throughout all these years. And I have one right here. If this person did not sit down at a blank screen or a blank piece of paper and have it on there saying the Transformers, the movie screenplay by Ron Friedman, we would not be here. This is the man that got everything going. I always say that that the early drafts of whatever it is that you do, that is the foundation and you have to have a good, strong foundation. If you don't have that, then everything else crumbles. So you got to make sure that that foundation is solid. You have something to build on and you can take whatever you have and send it to the moon. And that is why I am so thrilled to have as my first guest for this Transformers the Movie Celebration someone that I hold in very, very high esteem. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Mr. Ron Friedman. Ron, how are you, sir? I'm okay, but with that glowing introduction, I should have the decency to have passed away at least two weeks ago. <laughs> I appreciate it, and I appreciate the appreciation. Well, I, it's, it's something that I, that I said back when we lost Carrie Fisher at the end of 2016. I had an opportunity when I saw her at, at when she did Wishful Drinking on Broadway, Got to meet her, got to you know say hello to her, got her to sign my playbill. And I even asked a qu quick question about the Star Wars DVDs that had come out since she had done the commentary tracks on those. The one thing that I did not say was, you are the first person I have ever met that has been associated with Star Wars. I wanted to say thank you. I did not take that opportunity. And of course, I will never have that opportunity again. So I, you know, I've told it to everyone, friends, family, 
someone inspires you, someone, you know, like has done something positive in your life, you damn well better reach out and say thank you. So that is me doing that. I agree with you absolutely. And that's one of the things I always try to do. Yes. I see someone whose work I like. I will say, I love what you do. I think you're particularly gifted doing it this way. And thank you. Absolutely. And the first person I did that with when I came to California to do the Danny Kay show was a great actor named Akim Tamirov, mm. a great Russian character actor from Stanislavski's theater and just marvelous. Oh, wow. All over movies from the 20s and the 30s into the 40s. He played Pablo, mm -hmm. the guy in The Sun Also Rises, who mm. says, I do not provoke. <laughs> Wonderful actor. Yeah. Saw him in a diner, which I don't remember which one it was, but it doesn't matter. He's sitting at the counter with his wife, having the $4. And I went around and I said, Mr. Tamirov. He says, yes. I said, I just want to tell you that I love everything you ever did. You're a brilliant actor. And you enriched my childhood and my life tremendously. And he said, thank you for your eloquence. You are quite correct. <laughs> you like a piece toast. Aw, that's fantastic. I always do that. That is great. That is great. And so, yeah, so this, this, this mini series is something that I have been planning for about a year now. And just the opportunity to be able to sit down and talk with you about those initial drafts, about setting the table for what was to come, just to have that opportunity to speak with you about it is, you know, for me, it's just, it's a, it's a dream come true. Well, I, I enjoy doing it because it speaks to the longevity of this creation. Yeah. It's still with us mm -hmm. more potent than ever. Yeah. And one of my great pleasures is seeing that the original stuff that I wrote Mm -hmm. is what is what the fan base is going back to because yeah. they see endures. it as yeah. superior. Yeah. And I think that's because of the emotional content. Mm -hmm. I was determined to put emotion into it. Yeah. And I should give you a little backstory. Mm -hmm. After the success of G.I. Joe, mm -hmm. Griffin and Bacall came to me and they said, we have this Japanese show called The Transformers. And they showed me the toys. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd like you to rewrite the first 60 episodes. Wow. Look at them. Wow. You, the script, you can look at them. We need to have them rewritten. And uh, I think you'll figure out why. Mm -hmm. So I figured out why very quickly. Mm -hmm. And one of them was that they were tremendously repetitive because mm -hmm. all of them were about energon. You've got to get the energon. If you don't have the energon and the energon and the energon and the energon. Mm -hmm. And the characters did not emerge as individuals. Yeah. They all sounded the same. So what my first deal was when I rewrote them is I've got to give them singular voices yeah. so that the good family, that's the Transformers, mm -hmm. has a singular voice and the bad family, the Decepticon, has yeah. a singular voice. Mm -hmm. So what is that voice? Well, the British accent really helps. Mm -hmm. For some reason, you're going to do something from out of space, British accent. Yeah. It just, there's that sense of detachment of the other that mm -hmm. helps. Yeah. And then I've got to make it a bad family. So mm -hmm. the thing is, in G.I. Joe, Destro and the Cobra Commander despised each other. Yeah. 
they worked well together, but they food and a moron. Yeah. And they each sought to unseat the other. Mm -hmm. Never a Joe would do that. Right. And I gave them a kind of a Shakespearean size. So when Destro would talk about the ludicrous Cobra Temple, Mm -hmm. this is nonsense. Yeah. And the camera commander in that impossible to mimic voice would say, well, <laughs> easy for you to say, Destro, you didn't want to, and so on. <laughs> so I would make sure I set up those warring exchanges. Yeah. And that the dialogue, wherever I could do it, had Shakespearean size and some eloquence. Mm-hmm. Because I think eloquence in itself, even if it's a kid listening, particularly if it's a kid listening, right. I was a kid. When I heard eloquence, I might not have understood it, but I knew that's special. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's that guy's smart. Oh, yeah. I got it. Didn't you? Mm-hmm. I hated things that talked down to me. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, that's that was something that really grabbed me about those shows. Like I came, in, I was about seven, eight years old when I discovered when I discovered GI Joe, and then you know, like eight years old, eight years old and on when I discovered Transformers. And those to me, because we, I, I was asked, you know, like, what was it about those shows that really kind of grabbed me? And it was because I discovered them. I wasn't yep. shown something by, you know, like, by, like my father, my father it's got me yours. into, yeah, my father got me into Star Wars. He got me into Star Trek. You know, he had gotten me into all these different things. My mother, you know, the same thing, but Transformers, G.I. Joe, those were mine. You know, like I found them, I discovered them and I fell in love with them. And I was really taken by the writing. The writing was a major factor of it because it didn't play. It didn't talk down and it kept things at a really good, fast pace. So it was a combination of like the writing and um, Wally Berg, God bless him. You know, the sort of work that he did behind the scenes, working with those those amazing voice actors and those amazing voice actors. They like were great. Everyone was just really great. Game with that. You have to be a hell of a good actor yeah. to be a successful voice actor. Yes. Because you have to paint pictures with your voice. Mm-hmm. And you have to paint a character that you can actually see in front of you. Yeah. When you look at the depiction, the design of that character and the voice, yeah, they marry well. Yeah. They marry well, which reminds me of Ricardo Montalban was a friend of mine mm-hmm. because I got to know him well, having written 54 Fantasy Islands. Mm-hmm. So he and Hervé Villachez, who was tattooed, the plane, the plane, yeah. they were friends. Anyway, Ricardo was in visiting in Rome on a vacation. Yeah. And he tells this story. He's on the Via Veneto. Mm-hmm. And people are looking at him and pointing and giggling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's wondering. What the hell is this? Mm-hmm. I'm a laughing stock. And then a guy who made Elton John look like an NFL quarterback <laughs> with a long scarf yeah. and big eyelashes. Mm-hmm. He swoops down the street and he says, Senor Montalban, I am so thrilled to meet you. I am your voice in Italy. Whoa. Wow. How about that? Wow. Nothing wrong with gay, but as Mr. Rourke, somehow it adds another element to Fantasy Island. Yeah. An unexpected <laughs> element. Yeah. Which today would be fine. Right. But in the 70s, 
not what you'd be wanting. Right. Understandable. Understandable. Okay. Let, let me just finish this little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By all means. I insisted on having a female character. Mm -hmm. They said, girls don't like this. I said, my daughter's a girl. She loves this. Mm -hmm. And her friends love it too. Yeah. I want a female character. Mm -hmm. I created RC. Yeah. She's in there. Mm -hmm. And I said, also, I want a human child in there, a human kid. Mm -hmm. His father. Yeah. Why? So the audience has somebody that's them to connect them to all of this big stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. Okay, you got it. Yeah. And that was substantially the only instruction I had. Really? For, really. The, for, the, for the movie? You're like, yep. Wow. And I never met any of the writers. I think Buzz was, no, it wasn't Buzz Dixon. I forget who it was who just well, told me about something I could do with my computer so I could save the characters' names because there wasn't the software then that there is now. Was it Flint? No. No? I could see his face before me. I'll think of it. Okay. And I didn't meet Flint until I was at a Transformer Com in Burbank mm. in 2019. Wow. I was thrilled to meet him. Wow. Thrilled. He did a great job. Mm -hmm. Turns out we both have a background in, in the ancient world. And in fact, when I had lunch with him and I mentioned the analysis of Xenophon, mm -hmm. he said, I know what that is. <laughs> I mean, do you know what the Anabasis and Xenophon is? It's, I wish I could say yes. I would love to be, okay, to be a part you, of that group, but. Yeah. I'm going to tell you because it'll show you the, the durability of a good, of a good story. Yeah. <clears throat> the Anabasis says a difficult journey. Mm. The dimensions of the journey are not necessarily specific, but Xenophon was a Greek, wealthy mm. Greek. Yeah. The only Greeks that had real lives and weren't slaves were wealthy. Mm -hmm. Slaves made them wealthy, and so did their various business enterprises when they were there because they were great seafarers and great traders. So what the young Athenian gentlemen did, mm -hmm. they rented themselves out as mercenaries. Mm -hmm. It was a chance to use all of the war skills that they trained for yeah. for real get paid for it, get out of town, get laid, steal mm -hmm. stuff they could bring back. It was like a vacation with pay. Yeah. So a group of these Athenian gentlemen signed on as mercenaries for a pretender to the throne of Persia. Mm. I forget which Cyrus or which Xerxes it was, but it was one of them. Yeah. And they are in Central Asia getting ready to do battle. Mm -hmm. They are with the mercenaries, supporting the pretender along with his slaves, and the other armies belong to the emperor, Xerxes, or Cyrus. Yeah. First day of battle, the pretender to the throne is killed with an arrow through the eye. Oof. If you know the Bayou Tapestry, this is what happened in the... Uh, conquest of England. Mm. So what happened in those days, the way of the world involving mercenaries was mm -hmm. your boss is dead, get your weapons and get the fuck out. Yeah. And we won't bother you, just get out. Mm -hmm. So what happened when the mercenaries are told you're fired mm -hmm. is 
that the Persian general invited the officers of the Greek detachment to a farewell dinner. Hmm. And they murdered them there. Wow. Their thinking was this. Armies are slave armies. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. Yeah. Nobody's going to do anything for the love of us. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to use the whip. You got to use torture. That's what you got to do. Right. The Greeks, they're slaves. Their leaders are gone. Mm. We'll go in and grab them up and use them for our army. Mm. They didn't understand was that every Greek was his own general. Yeah. Famously so. They voted. They picked Xenophon. Lead us the fuck out of here. (laughs) And he did. And didn't lose a man. Mm. And the whole route was filled with Persians who wanted to kill them. And their followers wanted to kill them for the reward. Yeah. But he got them all back to Athens. Mm. How about that? Wow. There's a movie called The Wanderers, which is about a street gang in New York. Mm. They have a big conference uptown. The, the Warriors. The Lord, that's Warriors. It. Yeah. Warriors. Yeah. Up the big conference uptown. All the leaders are killed. And mm-hmm. now all of these guys on roller skates have mm-hmm. to get back downtown and stay alive. Yeah. Same fucking story. Mm-hmm. Wow. Anyway, Flint knew that. Yeah. I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. And he also knew who Alcibiades was and all the rest. It was thrilling. That's great. Because I've had a lot of education and I've always read. I so seldom get a chance to discuss parts of it that are arcane with anybody. Yeah. So it was a thrill. I think Flint is a very talented guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that makes that makes a lot of sense considering just how you know, like I, I mean, I I didn't read the I, didn't, I haven't read the initial drafts of the movie, but I do. But it's all sounds like based on you know, like what I've you know, like the experiences I've had talking with him, and also you know, reading the Games Master, and then you know, talking with you. It sounds like you know the two of you would mesh so well. We did. So it it really couldn't be a better pairing of one person working with another script and and adding to oh, it. I, listen, there wasn't much done to my script. Yeah. Because it was a writer's guild script. Mm-hmm. That means if anybody's going to take credit, yeah. they have to show enough work of their own to assume credit. Nobody did that. So it was like 99% of my script. Whoever put shit in, I didn't need that. I thought this is a disservice to mm. those kids. You know, older people are going to watch it. They don't need to hear shit. They can mm. talk shit all they want. Right. So I didn't like that. And in watching the premiere, the soundtrack was so loud, you couldn't hear the dialogue. Mm. And I got on Tom and Joe about that, and they weren't pleased. Mm. I said, if you can't hear the dialogue, you might love the characters, but you don't know what the fuck they're saying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, minor bitch, because that was cleaned up. They yeah. redid the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I was, like I said, I was, I was ten years old when the movie was coming out. It was actually just a couple of days after my birthday when it when it when it did come out. And I remember going over to my dad and saying, like, can we go see it? And he said, well, I just got a call from your uncle. And he said 
don't take to go see it because I'm going to take them. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. And so I knew that that was on the horizon and thankfully it was August. And so I didn't have to worry about kids in the schoolyard, you know, like spoiling right. anything. So, and thankfully I only had to wait two weeks because we went over to my, went over to my aunt and uncle's place that on uh, that Saturday, I think it was the 23rd, I think, and, or the 24th maybe. And it was, anyway, it was around that time. So we, we were based, I was talking with my aunt at the time and about all the different movies that had come out in 1986, which was a lot. There was like one after the other. That summer of, of 86 was just insane. Then I said that the main one I've been waiting to see is Transformers the movie. And my uncle walks into the room, into the room and just goes, you ready to go? Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready. And thankfully he asked me at one point on, on the way in, just said, uh, so what, is, so what's the whole thing with this? You know, like what's the, what's the break, you know, give me a breakdown. What are, what is it that we're going to see? And I spelled out the basic elements of the Autobots, the Decepticon, Cybertron coming to earth 4 million years later, they get revived. They, you know, become robots in disguise based on the, everything that's that's around the planet that's already there, you know, and then et cetera, et cetera. And I'm so glad I did that because right at the very beginning, I hear it is the year 2005. I was like, oh, okay, so we're taking a jump then. And that's when things really, you know, kicked in because it wasn't long after that. That's when that, that attack on the shuttle happens. And all of a sudden there goes Braun, there goes Prowl, there goes Ratchet, there goes Ironhide. And yep. so, so, when so did Hasbro basically say these are the ones we're disc discontinuing? Discontinued, yes. Yeah, yeah. Those were Hasbro's choices. Yeah, and so were they basically just saying you know just write them out of the write them out of the script or kill them? You know, like what was it that you know what was the approach that they get wanted them to take? Dead. <laughs> that was they it. Want, they wanted them dead. dead. Wow, wow. But then the big death was, of course. Optimus. Optimus oh yeah. I understand the uh, the need for the size of that. Yeah. I also understood well that you cannot really replace him. Mm -hmm. And I thought Rodimus Prime was interesting, and it was sort of a teen character mm -hmm. that, that was a, with a cool transformation, and and so on. But I did the best I could. But I knew that that could never become Optimus Prime yeah. unless you came back to him in twenty years. Mm -hmm. I I actually wound up really like you know like appreciating Rodimus Prime because because of that very thing, he yep. was someone who was living in the shadow of someone who was a legend. Overmatched. Yeah, and had to had to constantly deal with that. I even said that a few years ago. I was at a convention. It was over here in St. in St. Louis, and it was a wonderful convention. A lot of great people that were there, but it was horribly marketed, so barely anyone showed up for it. But it huh. allowed us the opportunity to go ahead and mingle with people. One of them being Greg Berger, the voice of Grimlock. Oh yeah, lovely guy. Absolutely, I know a lot of those voice actors. In fact, I hired a lot of them for the Marvel action on. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, and Greg has actually agreed to be part of this miniseries. So it's going to be, yeah. So it's, it's going to be great to hear his stories as well. And that prompted one of my friends, cause we, my friends and I, we had our books. So we had our booth and everything and we were selling them as well. I basically used them as loss leaders, my own. I was gifting copies of Excelsior to, to Greg. And I gifted a copy to Alan Oppenheimer, the voice of Skeletor. One of my and, oldest and best friends. 
Oh, really? I've known him since 1949. Wow. Wow. And fraternity brothers, and he's just great. Oh, he's uh, just a really, really great guy. Because I knew I had to give him a copy of this book because the main adversary is someone who was inspired by the Frank Langella take of Skeletor from the 87 movie. And I knew that that movie wouldn't have gone anywhere if Alan Oppenheimer had not made Skeletor the iconic character that he was. Exactly right. So I was like, I have to give gift him a copy of this. So I gift him, I, I hand it to him over at his booth. This is an example of what, what kind of a Prince Alan is. He gets out of his chair. He sits, he asks me to sit over at his booth while I sign my copy for him. And he stands over my shoulder, like looking down as I'm doing it. And the entire time, all I'm thinking is where the fuck is a camera? <laughs> and, uh, he's, he's a wonderful person. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And so I was asked by one of my friends what, what I would have done differently for season three. And the only thing I said, I said, the only thing I would have done, and this is playing exactly into what you said about Optimus Prime, how he's so irreplaceable. I said that what you, what they should have done was the episode Dark Awakening, where he's revived as a zombie by the Quintessons. What they should do is he should override his programming, but not kill himself at the end. He should stay on Cybertron. I absolutely agree. Yeah, he should sure. stay on. You should stay on Cybertron and be Rodimus's mentor, so yes. that way Rodimus can still go out on his missions. All you know, but Optimus is so badly damaged that he needs to stay on Cybertron. He needs to stay connected to a life support system. That is absolutely brilliant, and that is absolutely smart and correct in terms of u- utilizing characters with a history mm-hmm. with new characters so that you can draw from each one of them. Yeah. And by leaving one behind, there's always the time when the one behind catches up with the one away. Yep. Or vice versa, which creates, nothing's more exciting than the right kind of entrance or exit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because it can change the direction of a story. Right. As long as you know the characters yep. and you know what they're about, you'll go with them. And this was around the same time that G.I. Joe introduced General Hawk, who was basically doing the same thing. He was leading a G.I. Joe from behind a desk. So Duke and Flint were out, were the ones out doing the missions. So you had that authority figure hanging back. It would be the same sort of yes. setup for Optimus. And you can, you can always draw on what hasn't been presented yet. Yeah. I didn't know Optimus Prime had a brother, mm-hmm. Septimus Prime. I had no idea. But if I would bring in that brother... Mm-hmm. You mean Transformers can have brothers and sisters? Really? Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. How yeah. do they do that? Through their science. Mm-hmm. That's good enough for me. I accept that. Yeah. Why does yeah. a werewolf turn into a werewolf? Because the full moon is there, idiot. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, when you're a writer, you're God. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. like where you are? Don't be there. Right. Don't right. go there on page 28. Mm-hmm. Stay away. Go someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, that sort of it, that sort of feeling of of Optimus being the icon that he was. Yeah, I was definitely sad to see him go. But I was also looking forward to what the future would hold with all these new characters. how they play that. Well, yeah. What it means is you keep Optimus Prime in the mix. Yeah. And there's always this hope. Mm-hmm. When can he come back? 
Yeah. You really need him now. Which is can't count on him. Which is what which is another thing. When you don't expect it to say, I see what's happening. You've not you're going in the wrong direction. You've got to prepare for this. Yeah. And that's it's funny you should say that because it was in 87, I believe. That's when Hasbro brought in the Power Master line. And mm-hmm. the that was their end to kind of bring back Optimus Prime as in toy form by making yeah. him a Power Master. So what I was thinking was, well, you know, like if if Optimus is staying on Cybertron and he's, you know, like he's coaching Rodimus, he's got his ear and everything, he's able That's to be his mentor. Yeah. Mentor mentee relationship is really powerful. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden you have this instance that is that is creating this galactic you know, issue that will, you know, that will unravel everything that's, that we've all known and loved. And the only one who can, who can do something is Optimus. And so they reconfigure his life support system and make it into something portable that can fit inside him. A human can power it. Boom. You got yourself power master Optimus prime and you go forward from there. Well, you're, you're very much in sync with my thought was, that transformation doesn't stop with death. Yeah. That's what I did with Megatron. Mm-hmm. Oh, the which, which was wonderful. The transformation again, that's perfectly in keeping yeah. with the whole idea of the Transformers. Yeah, it's and evolution, fact, yeah. What I've been asked often, and I gave my thoughts on this at two comic cons and got standing ovations, mm-hmm. which shocked me. And I said, one of the things that appeals and appealed to me from the first with this, with Transformers is, we are Transformers, all mm. of us. Yeah. When we're small children, we see injustice. Mm. We know that's wrong. Yeah. We can't fix it. This makes us angry because we wanna make it better, yeah. but we can't. We have to transform into an adult mm-hmm. or somebody with the power to make it right. That's why we idolize Superman, Batman, Transformers, you know, the Autobots and so on. Mm-hmm. They can make it right. Yeah. But we continue to transform. And we transform with that sense of justice. Mm-hmm. We are fans of the Transformers because we are lifelong fans of the downtrodden being lifted up. Yeah. Because we were downtrodden. Mm-hmm. Every child is. Yeah. Every kid, you have adults, they determine your life. Mm-hmm. Are they always fair? Hell no. Yeah. Do they always make sense? No. Do mm-hmm. they create impossible exchanges? You have to love me. Why? Because I'm your mom. But you're a drunk and you're never home and you don't cook. Wow. I'm your mother, you're supposed to love me. So anyway, that's the staying power of Transformers. Mm-hmm. And I really believe the fact that I put the nobility into it. Yeah. The nobility of the Decepticon, of the Autobots, the yeah. nobility of Optimus Prime passing the Matrix. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. in the script, I call for Optimus Prime's color to vanish. When he, to me, that was a hell of a moment on the screen. Oh, it was amazing. It has led to this that I found out for every, every year, I hear something like this based on having written the Transformers, the movie. Mm-hmm. And at the Comic-Con, three generations would come to my table. Three. Yeah. Sometimes they were women, mm-hmm. daughters and granddaughters. 
and the oldest one would always say something like this, or the next one, I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Mommy and daddy took me to see the Transformers and you killed Optimus Prime. <laughs> Could you please sign my underwear? <laughs> Seriously. And I did. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it's no secret, you know, like amongst anyone who knows me, the Optimus Prime means the world to me because he is someone who inspired me from childhood on. You know, he got he it was that kind of a figure that aspired me to want to make a character that would reach those kinds of heights. And so That's exactly when, what I hoped for. Exactly. And in and then 1992, when I created my character, Excelsior, who would who is now He's next year. He's celebrating thirty years in existence, and that's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know that character. You have to send me some stuff. I will absolutely. Forgive I will. Me. I created this character with three characters in mind. I because he was originally inspired by watching the nineteen eighty one John Borman film Excalibur. Yeah, uh, which was it still stands as one of my favorite films. It's magical. Yeah, and so it was King Arthur, it was Jesus Christ, and it was Optimus Prime. Those three those three icons went into this mix that would become excelsior and he's gone through a lot of changes over the years but he's someone that i'm really really proud of and i can't wait to look yes yeah. so send me the link please absolutely absolutely Thank you so much to Ron Friedman for being such a great part of this show. You're going to actually hear more stories from Ron in our season four premiere, which is going to take place in September. Not the Tuesday after Labor Day, but the Tuesday right after. Now, before I introduce Flint as the other half of part one of this miniseries, I'd like to say a few words about the Hole in the Wall Gang camp, which Excelsior Journeys is currently raising money for. Founded in 1988 by Paul Newman, the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp provides a different kind of healing to more than 20,000 seriously ill children and family members annually, all completely free of charge. For many of these children and families, Hole in the Wall provides multiple camp experiences throughout the year at the facility in Ashford, Connecticut, in more than 40 hospitals and clinics, directly in camper homes and communities, and through other outreach activities across the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. I'm going to have this link available so you can go ahead and click on the button there and donate just as I am this month. All you have to do is go to holeinthewallgang.org. Thank you very much, and without further ado, let's go to the second half of this episode. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Now, last year I spoke with Flint Dilly, who is the who is credited as the story consultant for Transformers the movie, but he has also been able to get a lot more done behind the scenes. Flint is here right now to tell us about how he was able to pick up that torch and keep it going. So Flint, how are you today? Oh, real good. How are you doing, George? Uh, it's, I'm so thrilled. Welcome back. It's great to have you back here. And uh, so for this week, like I said, you know, we're going to be specifically talking about the development of the film. So I know that at that time you were pretty deep in Sunbow Productions for about, we'd say like about a year or so, right? Yeah, I, I'd say uh, I'm trying to, I don't know exactly when the script came in. I have this feeling that it was sometime in the spring. Ron would know that. 
Okay. And uh, a, but it was sometime in the spring, and we read through it. We said, okay, what do we want to do? And uh, and then after that, it was just figuring out what to do with it, what to change. And this comes as a big surprise to you. Everybody had a lot of opinions, <laughs> and we knew it was going to be a process. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so when you got, when, what were the ideas that were churning as you were, as you were? Well, Jay and I sat down and we decided that, that we, what we wanted to do was take the script because what Ron's script was, and and like every screenwriter knows this, but it's not publicly known, (laughs) but the first draft of any script is a wish list of cool ideas that the producers want or the studio wants or Something like that. That's not totally true. But in this case, we're doing a unique kind of script in that it was for product. Right. Yeah. And and so Hasbro had their things that they wanted, which is valid because they're paying for it. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to put all those things together. And and the objective was, because it's a really, this, but contextually, mm-hmm. it's a really whole new brand new thing. And that is that we we're taking it, we're, you know, making a show, taking a show that was on the air every afternoon and we're somehow convincing people to you put it in the, go to spend money at a movie theater to see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is before animation itself hadn't really had the comeback that it would have shortly thereafter with, you know, with the, the whole Disney run with, it was know, like great, yeah, like great, I think it was but, the great mouse detective that really kind of yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, what's really funny is right around that time, I remember Oliver and Company yeah. was was doing shockingly good business. And I remember Jay saying, that's kind of surprising to me. You're not hearing any big groundswell. There's no undercurrent, but it was doing great business. I'd say Little Mermaid was really the one that things that really took off with. I mean, I like, oh, yeah. I, and I'm a huge, great mouse detective fan, but I, yeah, I mean, it was really... Little Mermaid was when people were saying, wow, this is a real business. Because animation had been kind of degraded at that point. And that's not maybe the right word. But I mean, it, it no, animation wasn't a big deal at that moment. Yeah, and they- so it would have this huge come with starting right then. But there were, we really kind of, we, I felt like we were just sort of releasing out there on our own. And nobody knew what was going to happen. Right. Yeah, so, so obviously you have a whole kind of movie nobody's really done before. Mm-hmm. You have a, a a medium that's that's not as is unknown and and at that exact moment was underperforming, and and you have a toy show. So it's kind of like <laughs> okay, this is gonna be interesting. This is an interesting experiment. So it, and but there was no template for how to do it. Right. So we were we were just trying to figure it out, and, and everybody was sort of had their opinion of what would work and what wouldn't work, and and we went from that. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And so. Yeah, yeah, Jay and I had our own version. We came out with a draft that, yeah, we would definitely, and a lot of Ron's first draft stuff made it into the script. I don't know whether I've, yeah, what exactly his first draft is. Yeah, I've seen ones on the internet, but it doesn't, they aren't what I remember. But then again, I, we, this was a long time ago. Yeah. So, yeah, we, uh, so we, we put together our draft and it was called Secret of Cybertron. If there's one thing last fall, I, went through and cleaned out my whole storage area and and was just found all sorts of transformer stuff and all that and uh, the one thing i did not find that i wish i had was the secret of cybertron oh yeah, man because, that would have been you know, great to find <laughs> oh, that, yeah no it'd be a great it would be a great artifact to find 
And if I have it, I probably have it in some in some lost file, some disk format that doesn't exist anymore or something like that, but I don't have that. Gotcha. So we, we will we'll be left wondering what we're, we, until that, that fatal day when I find the thing, we will all wonder what, you know, what was actually in the secret of Cybertron, but it was a fun experience. Did you, did you see that as kind of a means of kind of going into the mythology of Transformers? You know, that was one of the real goals. Because uh, what's interesting is that now it's really common that you think about the backstory and the mythology and all of the elements of the overall franchise. You know, it's very common now. Mm-hmm. But you know, back then, that was, that was very rare. It was really only because we had these comic book guys working with us who basically made us think about all those kinds of issues because that wasn't what, what people normally did. But at the same time, there were earlier episodes that really kind of you know, dove into somewhat of it. There were various different versions of the origin. You know, we weren't really thinking about that stuff then. But it's not like now where it would be second nature to say, oh, what's our origin story? It wasn't really like that. You may have kind of an origin story in a pilot, mm-hmm. but not. it's not like today where where you have this deep meta story and, and all that. It was This was kind of, kind of new ground and mostly ground <clears throat> that we were interested in just because we had so many comic book guys and things uh, who think in terms of continuity and, and mm-hmm. in ways that the rest of us really didn't. And while you were developing this script, there there is a, there are a lot of really big ideas that, that were in the movie and also really explored in season three. One of the things that, uh, that was introduced really kind of came out of nowhere was the Quintessons. Now, with yeah. them... Were those your creation or was that something that was that an artifact from Ron's script as well? I, <clears throat> I don't know. Yeah, I, it, I don't know what the origin of that was. I mean, it also may have been Joe Bacall for all I know. I mean, that mm. we, what I do know is we had a store called Quintessence. Yeah. Right down the street from us in, in Westwood, where our office was. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, that was just kind of a, a phrase that was around in the 80s. We were listening to New Age music and, and all that. So... That, yeah, there's a story called Quintessence, and it may well have been snagged from that, but that that's just my speculation now. But I, I don't remember who came up. And remember, there's the, the whole bunch of different issues there. There's, there's yeah. coming up with whoever the creators of the Transformers were, coming up with the name itself, coming up with the origin and what, what these you know, characters did. All that stuff's kind of mixed into one big bag. Yeah. So there, there are many fathers. I mean, all of this was figure whatever ideas Hasbro had. Mm-hmm. Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall are extremely creative people. Yeah. Jay Bacall, hyper creative. And he was the uh, creative director at, at Sunbow. Mm-hmm. Me, Ron, Roger Slifer would be in meetings. Doug Booth would be there. And everybody's jamming out ideas. That's why when you have a team effort, it's it's really hard it's really hard to hand out credits and 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 really know who did what to who and when just being in that it sounds like just being in that room would have been just you can't help but be inspired i'm i'm feeling inspired just by you like you talking about it yeah well it was i mean no this was really cool i mean this was these were these were all really kind of smart good great creative people it was the team that did that at that point because remember the the rewrite period mm-hmm. w- went on for a very long time yeah 
And I, I mean that by the, in the sense that when I, I would say for probably started in whatever it started in 85 and you're effectively rewriting all the way up until the film's done. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, that's kind of how that works. Was there a set deadline in order to get like these? Did you have to just get like certain scenes over to the animators? Uh, I, I, I mean, it, what exactly that, that there was a point where things got turned over to Nelson in, in Korea and, 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 and just kind of vanished from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sense is it was, it was, you know, you figure, think of all the phases you're working on the script. Right. Who the characters are. So there's art development, there's the development of what the what the you know, characters are going to look like. We know we knew pretty much where the scenes were going to be. Yeah. And yeah. so they could be working that there's all the pre-production stuff. Mm-hmm. So my feeling is that it it was all. Yeah, there were a lot of things happening all at the same time. Gotcha. Gotcha. And there's there's also this mandate that's kind of basically just kind of hanging over the entire project, which is. From what I from what I understand, phase out the eighty four line and introduce the eighty six line. Yes, definitely. Now, what was the what was the feeling of just taking character the other characters just out of the picture or something, or is it just a matter? Was there it set just like let's just kill them off? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The decision as to what characters were they I, obviously what characters new characters we were introducing, and and kind of by the same token old characters were discontinuing. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, that was, that was very much that, that was very much a Hasbro decision. And I'm not, I'm not avoiding responsibility for it, but that's, (laughs) you know, I mean, it was a toy show designed to promote toys. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was definitely something that took me by surprise just as a 10 year old watching it in the theaters and all of a sudden there's, (laughs) there goes Braun, there goes Prowl and, Oh man, that his Prowl's death really just, I'm surprised that didn't give kids night, nightmares the way that. Oh, well, and I mean, it did. It was one of these things and it, it sounds funny to say it now, but it's true. Yeah. It was one of these things that at the time in the context of when all this was happening, I mean, we were bummed out about it because we've been writing these characters for all the shows. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we, we were taken by surprise by the enormity of the upset. It felt kind of bad about it. I mean, it was, and and obviously Hasbro did because they changed the mandate. So with that in mind, there was a lot that was going on in in this movie. And it seemed like the main thing that it really seemed like, especially during the first 20 minutes or so, was we had been used to, as fans, we had been used to seeing Megatron's like latest plan to to get rid of the Autobots in this way or this way or this way. And it seemed like in this one, it was just like, all right, gloves off. We're just going to kill him. So- yeah. Well, I mean, because obviously in children's television at the time, yeah, you couldn't kill characters. Right. Right. And, and, you, and when it was a time when they were very concerned about violence and all that. So yeah, the, this, yeah. I mean, doing what we did in the, in the film was just unimaginable. Yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was a movie and, and, I, the, what we felt was, well, it's being judged by a different standard. I mean, this mm-hmm. is now, it's a, it's a film and we're, there's different violence expectation. There's different audience expectation, all that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, but we, no, I don't, I, I think we're absolutely uh, taken, taken totally by surprise by the enormity of the, the reaction, the, then the level of upset. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it created some amazing moments and that, really is one of the reasons why 
in my eyes at least, why this movie still uh, still is still felt today. 35 years later, we're celebrating this whole anniversary here on this show. And yes. there and there's so many other so many other shows that are really that are celebrating this. You have Hasbro really pulling out all the stops and celebrating it. Yes. And well, I mean, the toy line they've been doing is incredible. Oh, the studio series is magnificent. Yeah, the studio series. I mean, that's that. I that is is as yeah major as anything I've ever seen. Yeah, I had to have the hot rod one as soon as 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 yeah. soon as I saw that, I was like, I gotta own this. <laughs> there was there was no there was no getting around that. And you also had that now now. Griffin and Bacall, were they really adamant that this movie be rated P? Yeah, I mean, somewhere between. You remember there are a lot there are a lot of cooks in the in the kitchen. So I mean, oh, yeah. I, I don't know exactly what was Griffin McCall and what was what was Hasbro and what was the the film distributors. Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, they were they were very much of the of of the mind that it it is a, it was a PG movie. They didn't want a G movie. That was considered just box office death. Yeah, yeah, and and so and and you can see then as far as killing characters and stuff like that they that's that's where that came from that it was like okay this we're doing something different we're not doing the show we do every day this is a different a different thing and so we're gonna treat it differently yeah and so with, with that in mind like all the different uh, different deaths and everything that you were part of during during all of this this right. whole process was there one in particular that you just knew was going to be amazing? well yeah obviously obvious. oh yeah Oh yeah, I, I mean, mean, like yeah, that's, that's I, I mean, I personally like, missed our stream a great deal and all that. Yeah, <clears throat> but we we knew it was going to be Optimus, but there was no way of knowing that just the magnitude of it, exactly how upset people are going to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that that was that was definitely that was definitely it. But at the same time, he was he was going out in the best possible way in terms of well, yeah, that was that that was it. I mean, yeah. the, the whole th- I, no, we really labored on that scene. I mean, you've read the book. I mean, yeah. That was we had everybody from, uh, you know, Steve Gerber, who's the GI Joe uh, story mm-hmm. editor, to Frank Miller, was you know, <laughs> who I met during that. Everybody was involved in in that thing. Yeah, it was it was it was really it was really kind of a funny, uh, a really fun creative experience from that point of view. Yes, and everybody was really on their A game. Like the the things that Nelson brought in. Oh, the- that, I mean, you rewatch the film, and 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 the thing that struck me more than anything was just how how amazing Nelson was because there are yeah. things that you take for granted mm-hmm. that if you think about it it's like wow that was brilliant I mean how, how do you show the death of a robot mm-hmm. and and he the whole thing of it goes into black and white there's so much stuff that's so abstract and complex mm-hmm. that uh, you think about how and and we take it for granted now mm-hmm. but you think about how how Nelson did it, it was it was brilliant yeah. Yeah, it really was. And just, and Vince DeCola's score that- uh, Oh yeah, I mean, it, it was really all of a piece. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Vince DeCola's score works so well with with Stan Bush's stuff, works mm-hmm. so well with the, I mean, but that movie's just, I mean, that what really struck me is just how 80s that was. Yeah. I mean, the music was absolutely perfectly 80s stuff. That, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, it was really fascinating in a way that to rewatch it because- I mean, I hadn't watched it since since we did it in what eighty six. Right from then until uh, when we when we did the twenty fifth anniversary. Oh, the twentieth, yeah, on yeah, 20th uh, the DVD, yeah. DVD. Yeah, 
<clears throat> you know, and then when when I knew I was going to do that, it, you know, the, it did that for Sony. I actually rewatched it I, probably for the first time. Wow, that that main maybe I saw it somewhere in the middle, but rewatched it for the first time right then, mm-hmm. and and it was yeah yeah that was an amazing experience. Yeah, it, it uh, really you know, is. And, and I was really struck. I mean, what's really funny is I've seen it a lot since then because a lot of times I'll go to conventions and people want to watch through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I just kind of watch what kind of a watch and talk. Yeah, and uh, it's really fascinating how how it plays over time. It really does. And it seems like the way that everything just kind of plays out, especially looking at that scene, not only was not only was Nelson on top of his game, not only was Vince on top of his game, but the the voice actors that were part of that scene were also fantastic. Obviously, you have yes. Peter, obviously Peter Cullen, the magnificent oh, yeah. no, Cullen. Those, <laughs> those guys are great. Yeah. Yeah. And and you really, I mean. We, for the one and only time ever, we used the celebrity voiceovers and all that just because, uh, yeah, that, that was just part of the marketing strategy for the movie. Yeah. But it, it also just told you how great the, the, the our regular, our, our regular cast was. Mm-hmm. I mean, those, those guys were incredible. Yeah. And, and speaking of celebrity cast, cause you also had, you also had Robert Stack in that scene as well as Ultra Magnus. I mean, Robert Stack was, I mean, he was. He was, everybody had their own, their own geek out moments. He was my geek out, geek out moment because nice. when I was a kid, like if I was really good, my mother would let me watch The Untouchables, which he started and he played Elliot Ness. Oh, nice. And yeah. yeah and, and so actually meeting Robert Stack, he was an incredibly nice guy. Oh, that's great. And yeah, yeah, I, just, I, just, I, I mean, I, I would have been intimidated by it except for about, you know, two minutes in, I realized <laughs> A, there was nothing intimidating about him. He was, he was an unbelievably nice guy. Yeah. And 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 the other thing that kind of shocked me was actually he was he was probably more intimidated by it than we were because he said, I've never really done voiceover like this before. Quite this way, for, certainly not for a cartoon show. Yeah. And yeah, because I, I mean, he, he did all the stuff in, in what do you call it? Touchables. Oh, yeah. But it, it was, yeah, he hadn't done it for this. So what was interesting was, and he did it and he was great. I mean, he nailed it first time out and he was fabulous. Yeah. And, uh, but, and what was funny about it was then later on, he was on a show called Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. And he been, been, that would, is one of the best voiceover performance I've heard from anywhere. I mean, he sounded like a, a voice from the bottom of a grave. He was great. And yeah, so it's 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 a movie like this that really kind of gave him that sort of experience of getting behind the mic. So exactly. That's that's always exactly. it's always a great thing to really kind of. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think the guy was quite talented enough. And and also, I mean, he wasn't he he unlike a lot of a lot of actors, it's not like he was some guy who was starving or something. I think he's he was the heir to something like Occidental Petroleum. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not, but just what a great guy. I mean, he, he was really, uh, really a nice, fun, pleasant guy. That, that was that was a that was a high point. Now, speaking of of celebrity voice talent and from what I understand, they set the they set the, the recording up differently than what they did on the show. Like on the show, they had all the different talented actors together in one room but for the movie from what i understand they were recording separately is that correct well yeah i mean yeah for a really practical reason and that was that that a lot of the a lot of them were very busy people who couldn't be all there at the same time right so you you had so we had to get we, we had to get them when we could mm-hmm. and so they, that's just kind of the reality of, of that kind of production and for with with all these different celebrity 
cast members that, that were coming aboard, did uh, did they they didn't you know look at this as like a like a denigration of them? Did they by do by being in this what people would say like an extended toy commercial? They didn't. Well, downplay I mean, it like apparently, that, but... apparently Orson Welles did when he was talking to his biographer later on. But at the same time, he's Orson Welles, right? He gets to he gets to have an attitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was funny about animation that I learned working on things later on is animation. A lot of times, you could get people you otherwise would not have been able to get for a variety of reasons. It wasn't much of a time commitment. They usually in a day or two mm-hmm. do their lines in in the thing. They they, they didn't have to go to a set. They would, you know, could go to a recording studio near where they were, and we would accommodate that. Yeah, and so and so you could get people that you wouldn't normally get. And later on, we when I was doing Five Will Goes West, we we got Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> and and so so you you can get these huge people, mm-hmm. um, and they're they're happy to do it for a variety of reasons. Also, in a lot of cases, they're they're people who may be extremely famous, mm-hmm. but like their grandchildren don't know who they are, mm. right? And so they're, they're really happy to, to, to do it for that reason. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting medium. And as the, as the movie was going on, obviously like the first 20, 25 minutes, a lot of carnage, a lot of action and a lot of drama really as we're going through this, all these characters that we've known and loved. So many of them getting right. getting destroyed. We're definitely running up the body count for for as uh, yeah, that's definitely an understatement there. And then and then you have the incredible scene after Starscream tosses out Megatron, which was fabulous, by the way. <laughs> no, that was that was that was my uh, my personal. <laughs> you know, that's one of the few things I I, I distinctly remember. I remember writing just what wait I live. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chris Lotta just did that stuff so well. I mean, yeah, I mean, this was an incredible. I, mean, I talk about him a lot only because all the other voice actors are incredibly famous for, yeah. you know, doing a lot of stuff. Whereas he had he had a very limited career, but he was a very limited length of it. Yeah, uh, but he was he was a voice that was incredible, extremely important to to Sunbow's products and I mean, he was and a voice for us. And you, you, you definitely never hear any slight bit of Chris Lotta phoning it in when it comes comes to any sort of performance. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, the, yeah. Chris Lotta uh, operated it at like energy levels the real people don't operate at. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he was sorry about that. Yeah, Chris operated at energy levels the real people don't operate at, and uh, and and was was totally committed. There was no there was no phoning it in from Chris Lotta. He was yeah pr- pretty much as crazy as everybody thinks he was. <laughs> but and I'm saying that in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was yeah he was great. And then you have that amazing scene with with Megatron encountering Unicron. And then now yeah. what I loved about this, and this was something that, oh, it's great. <laughs> it's, oh, you know, like, yeah, I, I, have, I have all the dialogue like committed to memory. I've had it for years. But when, when Megatron makes the deal, he accepts, he accepts Unicron's terms. Obviously, his bargaining posture was highly dubious, <laughs> but, but he goes in and takes it and gets converted into Galvatron. Now, what I love about that is it, it's showing 
the next step in the character's evolution. It's not so much of yeah. just like, we're, we're throwing away Megatron, here's Galvatron. He's a brand new character. There's a wonderful like element of Megatron that's still there. And it's there because the first thing he does is he kills the guy who threw him out. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that in itself was, ju- was just amazing. Now- well, I mean, we tried to do the best, the best signature stuff we could for all the characters. Yeah. You know, that, is, that is like pure strain Megatron behavior. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, and, and so we wanted to, we wanted to make sure we were getting that right. Oh, and and you definitely got that right. Definitely got it right. And and to top that off, you have this amazing performance by Leonard Nimoy as Galvatron. Yeah, what was it like working with him? Uh, no, it's funny as I was not there the day I think they 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 did him in uh, in New York. Yeah, so I was not there for for Leonard Nimoy. <sighs> I, I remember yeah. listening to it and thinking, yeah, that was a great call. Yeah, yeah, but I wasn't there for that. Yeah, he he was he he was really something, and then but then at the same time, like the tone really kind of goes in like a lot of really interesting directions. It goes a little softer, then it gets a little more. Then the action starts ratcheting up a little bit more. It's a really good like ebb and flow from then on. It's not just constantly pushing your foot down on the gas pedal. There are good. There are some really good ways that that that, that everything really kind of leveled off and it became something. It became like, it was just like, okay, let's settle in now. And it took us off for like another hour on a really good ride. Yeah. And a lot of people, like some people would disagree with me on that because they were still badly scarred over what happened with Optimus but and everyone else. But the I, I was taken by it. I was really taken by it, especially like as a 10-year-old kid and Spike drops, drops an S-bomb. That was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and that was very, that was never in a script. Yeah. That yeah. was, was there very specifically because we wanted to, we didn't want the, we wanted, we wanted a PG rating. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Cause he said it off screen. All you see uh-huh. is just the, is the rubble g- yeah. coming. Yeah. That was, going that into was a, uh, an addition later on. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that, yeah, for, you know, some release TV. Mm-hmm. We could take that out of there because it was an off-screen line. Yep. Yeah, but that that was that was a, a purely marketing-driven. And then and then from there, not too long not too long after that, you have the Quintessons get getting introduced. You have the and then you have the Planet of Junk where we're introduced to Rekgar. Yes. And played by Eric Idle. Now that was that must have been fun having yes. a chance to work with them. Well, I mean, I mean the Junkions. Yeah, I mean that was that was I think I don't, I don't know when that came into the script, but what a great idea! Yeah, um, and we we did everything we could to buff the junkions as much as we could because that was that it was there was just I love the idea that that there's somewhere in in space there's this this junkyard yeah where they, where there are junkions and 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 I and I think he did a perfect job with that that's just where they worked out well for us. And so my last question regarding the movie itself, there was a there was a se- there was a sequence that you had mentioned in uh, previous interviews that you referred to as basically like a charge of the light brigade where yeah. so many other characters were going like from one corridor of Cybertron to another and were just getting wiped out then and there. Was that supposed to take place during the end after all of the yeah, that well, that never made it into it made it into uh, the movie. Obviously, that was yeah. that was just in Secret of Cybertron. Yeah, basically, what that was it existed to do was uh, that was that was just yeah. I mean, we, we just thought. I mean, just remember, there were a lot of there was a long decision chain 
mm-hmm. in in deciding what who to get who get killed and how they get killed and all that. Yeah, and and so that was a decision that that was a a later kind of add-on decision of, yeah, I guess we'll, we, I mean, we, we were just thinking, well, you know, I mean, if we're, we have to kill all these guys anyway, let's just, you know, have one <laughs> big massive kill them all scene. Yeah. And so that was the, that was the, 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 our kill them all scene, which was probably, it was probably a very good thing that didn't happen. Oh, uh, cons- that was, that was yeah. probably a cosmically bad idea. That we- <laughs> yeah. Consider, considering the way that, uh, that, that, that yeah, the, the fans played out. So, so yes, yeah, so sometimes it's, it's good that, I mean, I, I still, I mean, the, the premise of that was that there was actually a secret of Cybertron and, and the secret of Cybertron was, was that you could, you could move that, that the Autobot matrix mm-hmm. was the key to transforming Cybertron, that it, it actually transformed and, and could attack and all that. That was, oh, wow. that was our premise. Okay. Nobody bought it. All right. I mean, Joe, Joe and Tom looked at us like we we're on drugs, and, and Jay and I thought it's the coolest thing in the world. And but the, you don't win all you don't you don't win all battles, and not all of them are worth fighting. But yes, that was yeah, that was the premise of Secret Cybertron. That, what I what I thought of is that that and some comic books oddly enough channeled this, unless somebody had a co- extremely rare copy of the script for Secret Cybertron, which I do, do not believe to be the case. But, but figured out later on, I thought of Cybertron and Unicron as, I, first of all, I always thought of Cybertron as being a mechanical planet. Yeah. And, and, and that Cybertron and Unicron were kind of like space brothers. And so that's, so that when, that, that, that Cybertron could transform too, but you had to have the Autobot Matrix to do it. Hmm. And the, the Autobots got the Matrix. Yeah. And then the next thing would to happen then was they had to install the the Autobot Matrix in the center of Cybertron to transform Cybertron. They had to do it just in time for when Unicron was getting there. And then you had this giant battle between two planets with the Autobots and the Decepticons scaring, you know, squaring off against each other. Wow, um, that would have been quite epic. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's just one way to go with the story. I would love to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you have some, if, if they decide, hey, let's do a alt version uh, of the movie for, for uh, Netflix or something. I, I would love to, I would love to reconstruct that. Th- this, of course, will never happen. It could be a graphic novel or something. But yeah, you, know, I, you never know. There's always. This won't happen. But I mean, they're just mm-hmm. the, those kind of like, what if ideas you have that, that are, that are always fun to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, kind of like those lost 20, that lost 20 year period between, yeah, exactly. between the end of the second season and the start of the movie. That would be a really cool thing to do. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there, I mean, there are a bunch of things that would be really fun to do. And yeah, yeah, obviously we've always wanted to cross over Joe and Transformers, but that was, that was not an option. Right. And, and it would be fun to see what would happen if you did that. And, uh, and, one of the things that that came to mind for me recently was thinking that maybe there was something that had something that had to do with the Autobots Energon supply, something that had been poisoned, something that had been completely depleted, to basically account for the reasons why they were able to get bumped off so so easily, and right. just kind of working into the story instead of just like there were. Well, these were these were characters that are being discontinued, but they that that was one of the things that was coming to mind for me. But that's the that's the beauty of this whole of this movie and everything that came afterwards was it just keeps on inspiring ideas. That's why I hold this this movie in such high regards for myself, because I this this movie inspired so many ideas that influenced my writing to this day. And 
I wouldn't have gotten that if if everyone involved, especially you, had not taken the torch and and run with it. So, oh, well, that's that's uh, that's very very kind. Yeah, no, I, I I mean it's it's one. I think I think we're we're all ultimately pretty proud of what we did with it. I mean, what nobody saw coming was nobody. I don't think anybody thought we were going to be talking about this, having this conversation forty years later, thirty five years later, however long it's been. Yeah. I mean that 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 we didn't we didn't see coming. I mean we we thought we were doing extremely ephemeral work that would be forgotten ten minutes after we did it, but that wasn't the case. Thank you again, Ron Friedman and Flint Dilly, for such a great episode. Really looking forward to part two next week, where we'll be talking with various voice actors from Transformers the movie. I hope you're having just as much fun as I am listening to all these great stories. And until then, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, till all are one and ever upward. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Excelsior Journeys miniseries celebrating the 35th anniversary of Transformers the movie. Thank you for donating to the Hole in the Wall Gang camp. Thank you, Zach Comtois, for providing the intro and outro to this miniseries. For more information about Excelsior Journeys, please go to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts.